Dear Father, thank you that you're with us just now. Please come close to us, restore us to a true knowledge of you, a relationship with you, and completely restore our trust in you. Amen. Well, how many of you could say some things that you remember about the books of Nahum and Habakkuk? Yeah, we're familiar with some some big picture things in Daniel and some of the other books, but uh, actually there is some very important uh, information, I think, in these books. And as we've done every time, we come back to this chronology slide because we're going back over the same period of time. There was so much written during this time just before the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. We've uh, spent this entire last few weeks on Daniel, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah that all were living during this time. And now we're going to go through some of the, uh, the other prophets that were involved, Nahum, who actually was a prophet to Nineveh. Okay, when we have to ask, why does God keep sending these prophets to Nineveh? And um, then Habakkuk also, who was living in Judah before the Babylonians captured Jerusalem. All right, so this is how the book of Nahum opens up. This is a message about Nineveh, the account of a vision seen by Nahum, who was from Elkosh. And remember on that last chart here, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. And just before this, Nineveh was destroyed, about 612 B.C. So this message about Nineveh through the prophet Nahum was to uh, Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, which was just about to be uh, off into oblivion. And it's interesting that the other prophet here to Nineveh was Jonah. And remember, the message came to Jonah. One day the Lord spoke to Jonah. He said, go to Nineveh, that great city, and speak out against it. I am aware of how wicked its people are. And I think to maybe help us identify with just you know what is going on here, the Assyrians all the way through are the enemy. They are the cruel, wicked people who destroyed the ten northern tribes of Israel. And so why does God keep giving them prophets. Jonah comes, and now later Nahum. I think it would be almost analogous to, uh, you know, you receiving a message to go off to whatever terrorist country and to give those people a message because God wants to reach them with a message. And would that be offensive to go to that part of the world with a message from God? And you remember how Jonah took it. Jonah was furious. Remember, he wanted that city destroyed. He went up, he sat down on the hillside, uh, to watch Nineveh be destroyed and he would have been elated. But no, they repented and he was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God. God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. So God, if you won't kill them, kill me. I'm better off dead. God, if you're that way, so forgiving, to me, that is repulsive. All right? But uh, here we have another message to Nineveh. And about 150 years later or so, Nineveh and Assyria was destroyed. The point here is these words that we, we love so much. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The world is everyone, not just the good people. Hey, God loves everyone, the world, good and bad. And just a few other examples of that. The Lord says, the people I love are doing evil things. And couldn't we mix these words around and say, uh, you people who are doing evil things, I love you. I mean, it's, we 
again, have this uh, idea, I think, often that our behavior causes God's love to go up and down, uh, a dimmer switch. We are bad, God's love for us drops down just a little bit. But here we have people, these people God loves are doing evil things. The love of God is a constant. Okay, Our behavior uh, will change and fluctuate, but that does not change God's love for people who are doing evil things. And in Isaiah, my heart cries out for Moab. Hey, we talked about the cruel God of the Moabites. And this is how God feels about those people. And in Amos, the Lord says, People of Israel, I think as much of the people of Ethiopia as I do of you. I brought the Philistines from Crete and the Syrians from Kerr, just as I brought you from Egypt. And we see here and in so many other places God's involvement, not just with Israel, but with every other nation, working with an equal intensity with each individual person, with each nation, uh, not just as chosen people. So when we read, turn to me now and be saved, people all over the world, God is really trying to reach the whole world, not just a, a select group in one place. And remember the people that Jesus praised for their faith, one was a Roman officer. I tell you, I've never found faith like this, not even in Israel. And the other was a Canaanite woman. And he declared of her, you are a woman of great faith. Okay, you'd expect him to come to his people, Nicodemus, the disciples, and be marveled at their faith. But instead it was uh, you know, these, uh, these heathens. All right, so the book of Nahum ends. You get this message of warning, and it ends with this very, very potent, meaningful verse here. Last verse of Nahum. And God says, there is no remedy for your injuries and your wounds cannot be healed. All those who hear the news of your destruction clap their hands for joy. Did anyone escape your endless cruelty? And this, this speaks to us here as, as medical people because what can God not do for these people? Is he limited uh, because of your great cruelty? I can't forgive you. No, God can forgive. The problem here is there's no remedy. I can't heal you. That is the issue. And we see this again and again as you know, what I've called here the terminal diagnosis. This is the point where God can do no more. Okay, same thing for Israel. Before they went off into captivity, and God said, I wanted to heal Israel, but its sins were far too great. Notice their sins were not so great I couldn't forgive, but I, I couldn't heal you. Samaria is filled with liars, thieves, and bandits. Uh, basically, there's just scar tissue left. There is nothing that is responsive to healing. The message to uh, Judah before the Babylonian captivity. The book of Second Chronicles ends, The Lord God of their ancestors repeatedly sent messengers, me messengers through his messengers because he wanted to spare his people and his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and made fun of his prophets until the Lord became angry with his people We've talked about what is God's anger. And notice what follows. He could no longer heal them. That's the bottom line. God wants to create in us a new heart, a right spirit. And when there's no responsive cord in us, that is the terminal diagnosis. And again in Jeremiah, is there no medicine in Gilead? Are there no doctors there? Why then have my people not been healed? That's what God wants to do. And later on, the Lord says to his people, your wounds are incurable. Your injuries cannot be healed. There is no one to take care of you, no remedy for your sores, no hope of healing for you. Of course, could God heal? Yes, but what would it 
what would it mean if someone who has rejected again and again the truth about God, the way God runs his kingdom, his principles, they don't like that. If God were to heal such a person, then we would have God the puppet master who overrides our free will, and God never does that. The message to Babylon. I mean, here are all these other nations. Babylon will suddenly fall and be shattered. Cry for it. Bring medicine for its pain. Maybe it can be healed. We wanted to heal Babylon, but it couldn't be healed. Again, that's the root of the problem. In Egypt, people of Egypt, go to Gilead and look for medicine. All your medicine is proved useless. Nothing can heal you. And so when David, after uh, committing adultery, we have this incredible psalm in Psalm 51. What does he want? He wants, create a pure heart in me, O God, and put a new and loyal spirit in me. He desires to be a different person. He hates the kind of person that he is. He wants a new heart and a right spirit. And Jesus came to do the same thing. He said, so the prophecy of Isaiah applies to them, talking about the Pharisees. This people will listen and listen, but not understand. They will look and look, but not see, because their minds are dull and they have stopped up their ears and have closed their eyes. Otherwise, their eyes would see, their ears would hear, their minds would understand, and they would turn to me, says God. And what would happen if they would turn to God? And I would heal them. Now, about forgiveness. Forgiveness, of course, is very important, but I just want to notice several examples in the Bible about forgiveness. One occurs just before the Israelites go into the 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And you remember, again and again, they distrusted God, they complained, they murmured, they wouldn't go into the promised land. Joshua and Caleb said, come on in, and they wanted to go back to Egypt. And so God says of these people, how much longer will these people reject me? How much longer will they refuse to trust in me, even though I perform so many miracles among them? All right, so they are not listening. God can't work with them. But what does he do to these people? The Lord answered, I will forgive them as you have asked. But I promise that as surely as I live and as surely as my presence fills the earth, none of these people will live to enter that land. They have seen the dazzling light of my presence and the miracles I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but they have tried my patience over and over again and have refused to obey me. They will never enter the land which I promised to their ancestors. None of those who have rejected me will ever enter it. Enter it. And so we wonder, these people who died in the wilderness, uh, at least from this perspective, it would seem God forgave them, right? But is forgiveness the issue here? Well, let's give a few more examples. Stephen, remember, as he's being stoned to death and Paul is right there watching the whole thing. And as he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. And in essence, wasn't he saying, God, forgive these people. Now, is Stephen more forgiving than our God? Of course not. Stephen forgave those people. God forgave those people. Rebels. So again, that forgiveness is wonderful, but it does not seem to be the issue here. Jesus on the cross, of course, saying, forgive them, Father. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father is no less forgiving than the Son. Those people who crucified Jesus were forgiven. So if, if this were the, the problem, then we have lots of rebels here who are being forgiven again and again. But notice, what does forgiveness do? What is the purpose here of forgiveness? We talked about Paul a month ago or so. He watched Stephen being stoned 
And as he's on the Damascus Road, God said to him, you know, your conscience is really bothering you, isn't it, Paul? Or Saul at that time. And uh, this was really working on him. I think this had made an incredible impression on him. And Jesus, of course, what would it do to you if, uh, you know, these people went out to crucify Jesus, beat him to death, tortured him to death, and then the person who is dying is gracious, he's forgiving, he's kind, and... Notice here what happened. When the captain there saw what happened, he honored God. This man was innocent, a good man, an innocent. All who had come around as spectators to watch the show when they saw what actually happened were overcome with grief and headed home because you don't expect this kind of a response when you're torturing someone to death. And I think this is what Paul... Oh, I come to this quote of Gandhi here first. The weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. And it was an attribute, I think, of great strength to die hanging on the cross and forgiving people simultaneously. So I think this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 2.4, where he says, Do you have contempt for God who is very kind to you, puts up with you, and deals patiently with you? Don't you realize that it is God's kindness that is trying to lead you to him and change the way you think and act? God is supremely forgiving. God always forgives. He's forgiveness personified. But this kindness, this graciousness, this forgiving quality of God is meant to bring us to him. Of course I forgive you, God says, but it is meant to bring you to me to change the way you think and act. You respond to that kindness and love that is offered. And so what, it, what happens then in the process, coming back to the healing, is that all of us have had that veil removed so that we can be mirrors that brightly reflect the glory, the character of the Lord. And as the Spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like Him and reflect His glory, His character, even more. And I think sometimes we naturally are repulsed a little bit by this because um, salvation is a gift, right? I mean, we're covered by something. We look at ourselves, we see uh, maybe not much that is good in us. So the thought that we actually change in some way in character is a salvation by works. I mean, what, what, what are we talking about here? Because what we often say is that um, we are covered, right? We are rotten to the core. If you were to cut into this apple, it would be stinky and rotten on the inside. But we are covered uh, by blood, we say, or someone's righteousness. But is that the reality? Is that what God really wants. But notice, what about the blood? Where is the blood supposed to be? And Jesus said, I'm telling you the truth. If you don't eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in yourselves. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life. What is eternal life? Eternal life is to know the Father, to know the truth about God. And I will raise them to life on the last day, for my flesh is the real food, my blood is the real drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood live in me and I live in them. And of course, he's not talking here about cannibalism. The meaning is you internalize, you ingest. It becomes a part of your whole body, the kind of person God is, a relationship with him, a knowing relationship, healing relationship. And it works on the inside out, not something that is shielding us from a God who is full of wrath against us. And so notice how this works in the disciples. After the resurrection, the members of the council were amazed to see how bold Peter and John were and to learn that they were ordinary men of no education. They realized then that they had been companions of Jesus. 
And how did they realize that? They noticed, you know what, these people are talking, they're acting in a different way. They kind of remind us of Jesus. Do you see the, the character transformation that was happening here? And Jesus said, for from the inside, from your heart, from your mind, come the evil ideas which lead you to do immoral things, to rob, kill, commit adultery, be greedy, and do all sorts of evil things, deceit, indecency, jealousy, slander, pride, and folly, pretty much covers it all. All these evil things come from inside you and make you clean. And I think more than anything, God wants to save us from ourselves and from these deeply rooted um, thoughts and ideas and sin and selfishness which are a part of us. Okay, who is the real Jew, the real Christian? Well, the real Jew is the person who is a Jew on the inside, that is, whose heart has been circumcised. And this is the work of God's Spirit, not of the written law. Such a person receives praise from God, not from human beings. And just coming back to this whole forgiveness, healing aspect, uh, remember Isaiah. It's thought that um, he was probably killed by uh, King Manasseh, sawed in half in a hollow log. And remember later on we read Manasseh, although he killed so many people, the streets were flowing with blood. He repented in the end. And so we imagine that up in heaven, at some point Isaiah and Manasseh will meet, right? And Isaiah's last memory of Manasseh was Manasseh sawing him half in a hollow log. And so will God, uh, you know, Isaiah maybe will protest. I don't know, but he'll say, uh, God, what's the deal with Manasseh? And will God say, uh, well, don't worry, I've forgiven him. He's still just as dangerous with a saw, but he's forgiven. Now, won't it be he has a new heart, a right spirit, and he now appreciates the things um, of my kingdom, and he's safe now with uh, a saw. I mean, so there's a change of heart, not just a, a forgiven crook. And so I wanted to just bring up here, just because we're talking about healing, this fits so much with kind of a physician model. Now, just imagine this patient here, 55-year-old man, you'll see lots of patients like this, comes to see you after missing his last 25 appointments. Okay, maybe I exaggerate there just a little bit. But um, anyway, he's neglected his high blood pressure and diabetes for years. His diet has been horrible. He smokes three packs of cigarettes per day. He hasn't taken his medications. And guess what? Now he's feeling dizzy and has headaches. All right, so this patient uh, comes to you. Now, would you say to this patient, and you might, because he's probably feeling guilty about missing all those appointments and not doing what you've asked him to do, but it would, be, would it be adequate merely just to say, uh, as a physician, you know what, I forgive you, go home. It's okay, <laughs> you're forgiven. And the patient goes home to his wife, and his wife says, well, what did the doctor tell you? And, uh, you know, he says, well, the doctor, he forgave me. And he said, come back again in three months. I'll forgive you again. And, you know, it would, there's more to it than that, is there not? So I think the, the patient comes in and the doctor, of course, it's a gracious thing to do. The patient's feeling bad, hanging his head. He's not taking his medications, missed all his appointments. And wouldn't it be as a doctor to say, uh, look, don't worry about it. I'm just glad that you're finally here now. Of course, I forgive you. Then that, that was never the issue uh, here in the first place. But now let me tell you something. Um, if you trust me, if you keep your appointments with me, uh, if you take medications that I prescribe, and you may have to change a few things uh, here in your lifestyle, 
but if you will keep your appointments, trust me, follow my advice, um, I can guarantee you that you will get better. Now, how would the patient respond to that? Um, would the patient say, um, look, I don't want to get better. Are you telling me I have to trust you? Are you telling me I have to keep appointments with you? Are you telling me I have to do something? Um, no, I want, a, I want a shot or something. Just do it right now. I mean, isn't it a process? And wouldn't the natural thing perhaps for the patient to stimulate some trust in that doctor and say, okay, I really want to get better. I'm going to keep those appointments and I'm going to do what you recommend. And it might be difficult, but I think um, uh, I'm feeling so lousy that I think, uh, I think this is the right thing to do. Well, you know, we, uh, in a sense, we come to God spiritually sick, don't we? I mean, we've missed maybe our last 25 appointments or whatever. And, and uh, maybe we're equally as deprived as this patient is. And just like the prodigal son, remember he came hanging his head, working on a speech of forgiveness the whole way. Uh, but what did the father do? Didn't even let him give that speech of repentance. He just wrapped his arms around him. I'm glad you're home. And the healing process um, began. So I think this whole idea of healing, it can be threatening because we're so primed against salvation by works. And this is not salvation by works. But I think the issue is if... Salvation, eternal life, is to know God. It is to be in a trusting relationship with Him. If we know God, if we trust Him, it is an unavoidable consequence that we change. It's almost like God saying, "Look, do you mind if I make you better?" Is it you know? Uh, it's something that just happens. It is not something where God is saying, "You must be this way." It is only an issue of us remaining in a trusting, knowing relationship with God, and then it just happens. It's not something that we of our own efforts and, and work do for ourselves. You know, it's kind of like Abraham, who uh, God said, you'll have a child. And it says in the Bible that Abraham looked at his body, Sarah looked at her body, and they just, there's no way. I mean, this is not something that is possible. And so there could have been two ways of thinking about that. One is Abraham could have said, you know, can you believe Sarah? God said, I must have a child at my age. I must do this. It is ridiculous. Or is it a, just a promise that God said it is going to happen and I am just trusting him that it will happen? So again, this is a this promise of change. It is a promise, not a command. And I think finally made the last point on this, the thief on the cross, of course, how much did he change? He just admired the one hanging next to him, right? And he put his trust in him. And that's it. He died only trusting and admiring the one hanging next to him on the cross. And Jesus said that's enough because he will arise as one trusting in God. But had he remained in that trusting, knowing relationship with God, would there not have been some change in his life, the way he talked, the way, you know, in his own character? And I think there would have. So we are saved purely by our trust in God. The point I'm just making is if we maintain in that trust relationship with God, it's just a rule that we become like the God we love, worship, and admire. So I think that's the point that I get out of uh, Nahum with the healing. Now, on to Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk lived in Judah, and this is interesting, the interaction here that he has with God. This is the message that the Lord revealed to the prophet Habakkuk. O Lord, how long must I call for help before you listen, before you save us from violence? Why do you make me see such trouble? How can you stand to look on such wrongdoing? 
destruction and violence are all around me and there's fighting and quarreling everywhere. The law is weak and useless and justice is never done. Evil people get the better of the righteous and so justice is perverted. Okay, now he gets a message. Then the Lord said to his people, keep watching the nations around you and you will be astonished at what you see. I am going to do something that you will not believe when you hear about it. I am bringing the Babylonians to power, those fierce, restless people. They are marching out across the world to conquer other lands. So Habakkuk comes with a complaint. I can't believe all this that's going on. And God says, well, just wait because it's going to get worse. The Babylonians are coming. So Habakkuk comes, I think, with a very natural response here. God, you're from eternity, aren't you? Holy God, we aren't going to die, are we? God, you chose Babylonians for your judgment work? Rock-solid God, you gave them the job of discipline, but you can't be serious. You can't condone evil, so why don't you do something about this? Why are you silent now? This outrage, evil men swallow up the righteous and you stand around and watch. You're treating men and women as so many fish in the ocean, swimming without direction, swimming but not getting anywhere. Then this evil Babylonian arrives and goes fishing. He pulls in a good catch. He catches his limit and fills his creel, a good day of fishing. He's happy. He praises his rod and reel, piles his fishing gear on an altar and worships it. It's made his day and he's going to eat well tonight. Are you going to let this go on and on? Will you let this Babylonian fisherman fish like a weekend angler, killing people as if they're nothing but fish? Whew. Now he says, what's God going to say to my questions? I'm braced for the worst. I'll climb to the lookout tower and scan the horizon. I'll wait to see what God says, how he'll answer my complaint. Now, how does God respond with hard words like that? And before we get to God's answer, I want to just parallel here how many people in the Bible will honestly talk with God like this. Moses is a good example. Moses turned to the Lord and said, Lord, why do you mistreat your people? Why did you send me here? Ever since I went to the king to speak for you, he has treated them cruelly and you have done nothing to help them. And we might think, wow, I mean, can you talk with God that way? But what do we know about Moses? Spoke with God face to face as a man speaks with a friend. And the next verse is not God rebuking Moses. Don't talk to me that way. No, that's just Moses felt that way. And that's what he said to God. Abraham's another good example. God comes to tell him about Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is Abraham's response. Surely you won't kill the innocent with the guilty. That's impossible. You can't do that. If you did, the innocent would be punished along with the guilty. That is impossible. The judge of all the earth has to act justly. And who else? Abraham is also described as a friend of God. And we notice how friends of God, well, how do friends talk? And here you're honest, you're open with exactly what's on your mind. Who's another good friend of God? Job. And he said, I still rebel and complain against God. I cannot keep from groaning. How I wish I knew where to find him and knew how to go where he is. I would state my case before him and present all the arguments in my favor. I want to know what he would say and how he would answer me. Would God use all his strength against me? No, he would listen as I spoke. I am honest. I could reason with God. He would declare me innocent once and for all. And how does the book of Job end? But with God saying, Job has said of me what is right. And we contrast this with the attitude of the friends, which was, I won't ask to speak with God. Why should I give him a chance to destroy me? God's power is so great that we cannot come near him. 
In other words, Job, lightning will strike if you say words like that. I won't ask to speak with God. Why should I give him a chance to destroy me? All right, so we come back now here to Habakkuk, who has said this. Now he goes up to his tower and he's going to wait. What is the message that God is going to bring? Well, the Lord gave me the answer. Write down clearly on tablets what I reveal to you so that it can be read at a glance. Put it in writing because it is not yet time for it to come true. But the time is coming quickly and what I show you will come true. It may seem slow in coming, but wait for it. It will certainly take place and it will not be delayed. And this is the message. Those who are evil will not survive, but those who are righteous will live because they are faithful to God. And right here in Habakkuk, this whole um, idea, we talk about righteousness by faith. Um, that was not Luther. That was not Paul. This really comes from right here in Habakkuk. All the times where Paul talks about righteousness by faith, he gets this, quotes it from Habakkuk. And so it's helpful to know the context in which these words were said. This was a horrible time. The Babylonians are coming. God is telling Habakkuk, this is what's going to happen. And the message is, look, if you are right with me, if you are the righteous people, will live trusting me even when things look as bleak as they look right here. And as the book goes on, Habakkuk seemed to get the message because this is how the book of Habakkuk closes. Even if the fig trees fig tree does not bloom and the wines have no grapes, even if the olive tree fails to produce and the fields yield no food, even if the sheep pen is empty and the stalls have no cattle, even then I will be happy with the Lord. I will truly find joy in God who saves me. The Lord Almighty is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer. He makes me walk on the mountains. Even if things look completely bleak, even if I do not understand, God, what you're doing, yet I will trust you. And this is the origin of the idea of righteousness by faith. How do the righteous people live? They are trusting in God even at a dark time like this. Okay, so we take these words again. But the righteous person will live because of his faithfulness. And this concept really goes all the way back to Genesis as well. Abraham put his trust in the Lord. And because of this, the Lord was pleased with him and accepted him. This is the root of everything. We are saved. God will save everyone who trusts him. That's it. Abraham put his trust in God and God said, that's good. That's what I want. And Job, remember, he had this horrible, bleak experience. And in the middle of that, he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I think it's the same idea. God, I don't understand right now, but I trust you. And that's what God wants. And so when Paul quotes this uh, in Romans and also in uh, Galatians, uh, we want to understand the words in that context where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, in the gospel, the good news, is revealed a righteousness of God from faith unto faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, by trust. And I like uh, uh, this, uh, another translation of this, for the good news is a revelation of God's true righteousness, character, methods, and principles that restores trust in God and results in recreation of a righteous and Christ-like character. Just as it is written, the Christ-like will live 
by trust. Trust is the key. And what is the basis of our trust? It is a true knowledge of God, which is the good news revealed by Jesus, the kind of person God is. And so this word, as we read faith, trust, believe, it's one Greek word for all three of those. And so in, uh, in Acts 16, where the words come, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your family. Of course, we can think of lots of people who believe in Jesus, Satan included, um, who will not be saved. That's where it's helpful to know this, this single Greek word means believe, trust, and faith. So what some versions have, have faith in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And as the Message Bible has, has it, they said, put your entire trust in the Master Jesus. Then you'll live as if you were meant to live and everyone in your house included. And the New English Bible also has put your trust in the Lord, which is, I think, really the meaning. Not just believe in a person named Jesus, but we put our trust in him. We put our trust that God is exactly as Jesus revealed him to be. And so, again, I think the essence of everything in here is trust. But what is our reason for trusting God? Um, I love this verse in Psalms. Those who know you, Lord, will trust you. Again, what does it mean to know God? It means to know the truth about God, to know the truth about his character, that we admire that he is that way. And it is unavoidable then that we trust him and that uh, the healing and all these other good things uh, come out of that. But the foundation ultimately is a trusting relationship with God. Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, please help us to have a greater trust in you. And we know that this ultimately is based on seeing you as we are, that we see that you are trustworthy. And as we go about our daily lives, may the experiences, the conversations that we have, um, our thoughts, our prayers, uh, all of these things, may they restore us to this healing, trusting relationship with you. Amen.